Now there's a question, what, what is nature? People have written books, philosophers have commented on that. So, I mean, that is a very, very difficult question. My perception of nature is probably different from a lot of people's because I think that like when we talk about the natural world, we often distance ourselves from what we consider to be nature. For some people, nature is um, kind of uh, places where people aren't. So these two things exist very differently. The rainforest is nature. And so there's this, like, there's, again, this very strict binary that is set up. And I don't think that that's a very productive way to think about nature. Nature exists everywhere on the planet. It exists in cities uh, as well as in um, uh, distant forests or grasslands or marine environments and so on. Because if something exists, it exists in the natural world. Like, you, the, the, like, by definition of its existence, it's part of the natural world. Yeah, the term nature is just so broad that uh, it, it's easy to define it in so many different ways. Like, we are ourselves part of the natural world, and this, like, this binary that we have set up where we exist separately from the natural world is incredibly dangerous. And to talk about wild animals as though they exist someplace separately is, again, incredibly dangerous. I'm Maya LaPearl, and you're listening to Wildness. Wildness is a podcast about the experiences of animals living in the wild, and the people who are working to help make those experiences better. I'm making this podcast in conjunction with Wild Animal Initiative to work towards a better understanding of wild animal welfare. Wild Animal Initiative is a nonprofit that works to research, raise awareness, and reduce the suffering of animals. Support this podcast and other projects at wildanimalinitiative.org donate. Making this podcast has gotten me thinking a lot about my own assumptions and understanding of what nature is and what it isn't, and especially about what it should be. It seems like most people agree we should be doing what we can to preserve nature, which makes sense because even if it's hard to define what exactly the word nature means, most people seem to think it's a pretty pleasant place. My name is Mark Davis. I'm a professor of biology at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. I started appreciating the visual and auditory beauty of nature as a child. Uh, we kept uh, bird feeders and uh, I had a pair of binoculars and kept a bird list and things like that. And so uh, from a young age, I was always kind of looking and hearing for new things. One of the things that also became something that I valued was the uh, timelessness of nature. Uh, for example, the birds that are migrating north right now in North America are doing so just like they've done uh, every spring, every April for thousands of years uh, before humans even occupied North America. So as a kid watching the uh, Canada geese uh, flying north in the spring, seeing some uh, unusual birds that we wouldn't normally see as they're migrating through things like avocets, uh, for example, 
just really stirred my soul and um, began this interest in nature and ecology. Nature is kind of a place for me to go and reset all those sort of things that people say you should try to do to de-stress and become a better person and, you know, and more caring, you can find yourself doing when you go out to a natural landscape. And certainly some of that is seeing wildlife, other, other beings in the outdoors, in nature, reminds you that you share the planet with the plants and the animals and everything that's around you. The wonderful, extraordinary diversity of organisms that evolved on Earth and that share Earth with us. Uh, most people, I don't think, fully appreciate how special it is to have uh, life on this planet. I always feel at home when I go outside and like, this is a, I feel good. It's a good place to be. And when you see other animals, you feel like, oh, that's kind of a signal that this is a good place for them too. And it's kind of nice to share your our, our home with each other. As far as we know at this point, um, other species are our only companions in the entire universe. And so in, in some respects, you, some people might say there is a, a spiritual connection with nature. Others might uh, simply uh, describe it as, as a way of staying in touch with something larger than ourselves, which is you know, all these organisms continuing to live uh, the way they have done uh, long before uh, humans were around. Yeah. And then what do you think that other animals' experiences in nature are like? Well, that's a, a, a great question. It would be fun to be able to answer that. Um, until we're able to communicate in depth with other species, we really won't know. I mean, nature is just life for other animals. Um, it's just their world. But whether or not the animals appreciate nature in any way that humans do, um, you know, as I said, we can't really know. It would seem kind of doubtful. Um, it's just like the old adage, the last thing that fish would ever discover would be water because it's just, uh, it's just the medium in which they live. In other words, wild animals don't have the privilege of moving in and out of natural spaces the way that many humans do. And they don't seem to have the same impact on shaping natural spaces either. Because we take it upon ourselves to develop some land into human-centric towns and cities, and preserve some areas as what we call nature, we sort of have the responsibility of deciding what nature actually is. So what belongs in nature and what doesn't? And is there some objective answer to this question or is it just based on the values of whoever you're asking? For some, the idea of species and which species are native or non-native to certain ecosystems holds the answer to this question. So I wanted to learn more about what people mean when they say a species is native. I decided to do some research on this story about these goats who are being relocated from Olympic National Park in Washington to the Northern Cascades, because it's happening pretty close to home, which for me is Portland, Oregon. I'm not native to Portland myself. I was born in Massachusetts. And further back, my ancestry is very largely European, so there's that too. I began by talking to two people who are very invested in what's happening to the goats. 
My name is Rachel Bjork, and I'm on the board of the Northwest Animal Rights Network. I've been active with NARN since about 2000, which is also the same time I started getting involved in animal rights. I'm Rob Smith. I'm the Northwest Regional Director for National Parks Conservation Association, a national nonprofit group of park advocates. How did you end up working for the National Parks Conservation Association? I worked for about three decades for the Sierra Club in the Southwest, uh, and I really got involved in that because I like the outdoors, also interested in history, loved the West, and then this job came up in the Northwest where I had gone to school and grown up somewhat uh, when I was much younger. So it was a chance to come closer to family and really focus down on the things that are all about our love for public lands and the outdoors, which are the national parks. I grew up with relatively active parents, not in animal rights per se, but they volunteered at different organizations. And so that was just a normal thing for me is to go somehow contribute to the community. And when I found out how animals, particularly ones that are raised for food are treated, again, it was just one of those things where I felt like I had to do something. I mean, I have a soft spot for goats in general. And then I heard about what they were doing. And I just I was like, oh my God, I need to look into this. So, and because of what everything else is going on, it, I think a lot of other groups just haven't wanted to touch it. I heard people saying, oh, this is really cool. They're moving the goats. They're going to move them to the North Cascades. Look at that. Oh, that's cool. So that's, I think most people thought it was really neat. And, and they didn't consider that, you know, this whole process is stressful for them. I mean, how would you like it if somebody shot you with a tranquilizer and blindfolded you and put you in a sling? You know, and, but people don't think about that. There's a great deal of care taken. A lot of experience has been gained by adjusting uh, and crafting the slings such that they don't squeeze the goat uh, around their midsection so they can't breathe. They're properly supported. They have put on blindfolds so that they uh, don't panic from what they're looking at. Uh, the people that are working on this not only care about the larger ecological aspects of this, but actually like animals. They are animal people. They want to take care of them. They want to do what's right for them, and they want to do it right and take the time and the money and the effort to do it as best they can uh, and, and look out for animal welfare. So if you haven't heard about these goats before, you're probably wondering why anyone would come up with the idea of taking a community of goats living out in a national park and transporting them by helicopter to a different national park. I generally think of goats as pretty harmless, mind their own business kind of folks. But the Olympic National Park goats have a lot of controversy and drama surrounding them. One person I contacted about doing an interview for this episode declined because he said he had fought this battle 20 years ago and he didn't want to waste any more of his energy on what he says is clearly a lost cause, serving as an advocate, not only for the goats, but for science itself. What people know about the mountain goats is they're throughout the Rocky Mountain West, but the Olympic Peninsula has been ecologically isolated through a series of glacier periods so that uh, there are unique species of plants and animals that live in the Olympic Peninsula, and some animals, there's just no record of ever occurring. Grizzly bears is one, mountain goats is another, even though you find those not all that far away in the Cascades and other Rocky Mountain ranges. So 
they were brought to the park in, or at least some of them were brought to the park in the 1920s for hunting. There is some dispute as to whether or not there were goats there already. For hunting purposes, about 12 mountain goats were introduced into what is now Olympic National Park about 100 years ago in the 1920s. And they have just repopulated themselves over time to coming, I guess, in the 1970s were, or 80s, were about 1,200 of them out there. And this is a place that before that had zero. There have been uh, citations in journals from various explorers and uh, certain tribes have mentioned goats, but there's a dispute about whether or not they were actually talking about mountain goats or some other animal or whether the explorers were misidentifying the animal they saw. The Park Service will tell you absolutely no goats were there, but there have been instances where they may have been observed. So that's one thing people disagree on. Whether the goats were there before the 20s or not. Whether they're native to Olympic National Park. The other thing people disagree on is whether they should be there now. They have slowly increased in population. I mean, the Olympic National Park is pretty large. Uh, and then in the 1980s, they decided to kill a bunch of them because they felt their population was getting too large. They were seen as a problem, recognized as a problem then, because they would start digging up uh, the ground to make wallows. Uh, they would start munching on some of the endemic plants there, uh, the plants that grow nowhere else but the Olympics. And that was kind of a threat. So they did kill a bunch of them. And then in the 2000s, they did a, a population survey and they found that they were increasing at about 4%, 5% a year. The goats live in high alpine areas above tree line generally, because that's the kind of country they like where there are cliffs, bare mountains. And there's not a lot of vegetation, but a lot of the vegetation that is there uh, is uh, among the uh, 12 or, or 15 different kinds of uh, plants that live only on the Olympics. Uh, and you know, some of them are pretty flowers, others are things you might not notice, but the goats eat those along with everything else. The concern is you would lose something that is unique to the Olympics by something that's not supposed to be there at all and the Park Service is trying to restore the proper balance. Ultimately, harm is in the eye of the beholder. Some people may regard as harm, someone else might just regard as change. That's Mark Davis again, who you heard talking about what he appreciates about nature earlier. I became interested in the introductions of non-native species in the 1990s, uh, after I'd read Michael Pollan's 1994 article in the New York Times Magazine, titled Against Nativism, in which Pollan wrote about the ideological roots of nativism. And I began to see how this ideology regarding native and non-native species was permeating conservation and restoration ecology, and which was, in my mind, uh, undermining the scientific integrity of these fields. When I would attend meetings, I heard my colleagues speaking and adopting this ideology um, without apparently realizing what they were doing and that their comments were not fundamentally scientific, i.e. data-based or neutrally descriptive, 
but were really uh, setting an agenda, uh, given the language and so on that they were using. Mark became increasingly concerned with what he viewed as an unethical approach to presenting science. I mean, our purpose should be to present as cleanly as possible findings that we have discovered uh, based on our scientific research. The implications of those findings then kind of starts to move out of the scientific sphere. Anything beyond that, he says, isn't really science, but personal opinion. That's a scientist uh, talking about a desired objective or agenda. And the problem is becomes when a value-laden emotive language gets interspersed with scientific language. Um, in my view, it's kind of pseudo-scientific language. It sounds scientific but there's uh, actually a, an agenda uh, being presented and not simply the data and the findings. And having agendas is fine, but um, we should, as scientists, we should be very clear on when we are uh, presenting as value-free as possible uh, findings, and then when we are presenting uh, perspectives and viewpoints. So uh, in articles and presentations, instead of just presenting data and findings, there's a, uh, an overt effort to argue a specific case, which is uh, that the non-native species are bad, the native species are good, and uh, we should try to conserve the native species and try to uh, eradicate the non-native species. Um, there's been a long history, well, just since 1980, I guess, uh, of overgeneralizing and abuse, utilizing hyperbole in its characterization of non-native species. And sometimes the field or individuals have even presented false information as if it were scientifically based. Uh, for example, one of the uh, most common claims that have been made in the last 20 years is that invasive species are the world's second greatest threat to biodiversity. And that is far from the truth. Uh, there are many, many uh, factors which are much greater threats to biodiversity uh, land use change, um, over harvesting by humans, uh, pollution, climate change, to name uh, some of the primary ones that are much greater threats to biodiversity. But um, people misrepresented a, a, a particular article that was published, which <laughs> the article itself never claimed that the invasive species were the world's second greatest threat to biodiversity, but uh, the findings and the claims were misrepresented and for a couple of decades, uh, the common claim was that the invasive species are the world's second greatest threat to biodiversity. Just terrible science. And just an example of how it seems in many cases the agendas for some invasion biologists were more important than actual good data. From what I read of the environmental impact statement that the Parks Department themselves put out, it does not appear from their own words that the goats are having this enormously detrimental impact on the park. It seems disingenuous to me to say that they have to do something about the goats because it's going to adversely impact the wildlife that is definitively native there. You know, we drive cars up there, we go hiking up there. There's been, uh, you know, you've probably read that a lot of parks right now are just getting an you know, overabundance of visitors, and the more people that go out there, as lovely as it is, is going to have a detrimental impact on the landscape. 
So if that's a concern, then they should consider limiting the number of visitors. But instead, they're punishing the mountain goats. I think it really came to a, a head, per se, when a visitor got killed by a goat. Previously, they were just kind of a, an annoyance, and then the person got killed, and I think they felt like they had to do something. In 2000, 2010, actually, a mountain goat actually got very aggressive towards a hiker and uh, who wouldn't get out of the trail when the goat wanted to go by and stabbed him with his horn and the hiker bled to death in front of his friends who were trying to drive the goat off. So the, the goats can become very familiar with people because they're sources of salt. They're sweaty uh, or they're attracted to their urine because there are no natural salt licks out on the Olympics. Uh, unlike, say, other places, other mountain ranges where they stay away from people because they can get salts from mineral formations. In the Olympics, uh, we're it, uh, which means that they can get much more familiar with people uh, than you would normally expect. In their uh, introduction to the impact statement, they highlighted the visitor that was killed. So that's obviously a concern for them. So part of the impact the goats are having on the park is that they've made it less safe for people to enjoy. And one of the big things people seem to value about nature is its tranquility. When you feel like you're surrounded by noise and chaos and unpredictable people and traffic and all those sort of things that most of us experience, I find nature to be calming um, where you live much more in the present. I think for many people who appreciate nature, it's, a, it's also a way of being able to get away from the hecticness and pressures of daily life. The therapeutic value of nature has been gaining more recognition lately through attention to studies indicating things like faster healing times when hospital patients have a more natural view out of their window, or decreased stress levels after spending time in the forest. But in order to maintain the type of calm, soothing nature we have the privilege of enjoying as human beings, National parks and other wild spaces need to be managed or engineered with our own safety in mind. And that brings up the question of who nature is being preserved for. I sort of understand that they don't feel they can limit the number of visitors because I suppose there's the argument about the purpose of national parks. And I prefer to think of them as for animals and for animals to thrive. But I'm sure that there are others that consider them for human beings to go have fun in, which is, is nice for people, but, you know, there are other creatures on this planet to consider. Like when you read, like, you know, the constant articles in, in the news um, or see stories about, like, oh, a bear was found, like, wandering in this neighborhood or a deer was eating out of the trash in Brooklyn, and it's like, oh, wow, this is suddenly very strange and like how unusual and it's like because we don't view these persons and yeah like I talk very deliberately and very explicitly about other species um, as persons like you know we, we don't view them as part of like our world because this world is separate from the quote natural world and so like you know that doesn't belong here one of these things doesn't look like the other and that is like you know that is such a tragedy and such a gross misunderstanding of like you know of one's place in our society because of course they belong here as long as we continue to gentrify their neighborhoods they belong here like you know and and the idea that they belong someplace else in this 
far off distant um, made up environment that is not like the one that I'm living in. It's like, you know, it is like, it's absurd. That's Christopher Sebastian. Most people just call me Sebastian. Um, I have been vegan for 14 years and I have been involved in vegan activism uh, and, and lecturing and writing for the past maybe five or six years. Uh, I work for vegan publishers as a staff writer. I teach uh, speciesism um, at Columbia University. Um, I also am the social media director for Peace Advocacy Network. And I also work as an off-site volunteer coordinator for Vine Sanctuary. Most of what I um, speak about and most of what I write about has to do with um, helping people to understand animal violence as, uh, as it influences anti-black racism, as it influences queer theory um, and class discrimination and as a part of environmental justice. And, um, and help people to understand that animal violence doesn't occur in isolation. For me, like, it's impossible to ignore that, that these things are related, that these things are connected, that so many of our attitudes toward other animals are influenced by whiteness, are influenced by masculinity. They like to highlight the goats flying through the air because that's an interesting visual, for some people anyway, of a goat being blindfolded in a sling being helicoptered around. I have to be honest that this is a big part of what struck me about this story myself. It's pretty surreal looking at these photos of goats in what look like evil Knievel outfits, suspended from helicopters and flying through the air above the mountains. Just because we are visually consuming them and turning them into an aspect of like our entertainment culture doesn't mean that we haven't reduced their lives into a, like, a consumable good in a different way. But another thing that struck me about this story were some of the parallels I saw between how we treat other animals and how we treat each other as human beings. Uh, they keep the nannies with the kids, uh, which is more than sometimes we can say in other places, uh, keep the families together. Wow, I'm pretty sure Rob is talking about other animal relocation operations here but I can't help but be reminded by these words of human beings who are considered non-native here in the U.S., some of whom are currently being kept in cages or separated from their families at our southern border. And they took great care, and they also put them in crates and put them in refrigerator trucks to keep them cool, uh, and then drove them as quickly as they safely could to the Cascades for release the following morning. And if anyone thinks that, like, this doesn't influence, like, you know, our relationship with one another as humans, it absolutely does. Because whenever we address a population that needs to be controlled in some way, um, it's always black and brown people on our planet who, who suffer the greatest consequences, who are most burdened by these draconian measures that we want to visit on others. Um, and we have seen this time and time again when there is thought to be too many of a certain people. Um, they have been consigned to camps where they are exterminated. We absolutely introduced measures to control their reproduction. We have forcibly sterilized Native women um, in North America. We've seen this, like campaigns of this, like done over and over again in other countries like India. And the people who are at the top of this hierarchy are usually 
like white, male, upper class, well-moneyed and able-bodied um, and have no uteruses to speak of. And it's not an accident that, like, you know, that these people are always, almost always associated with what it means to be human. The closer you are to this idealized, like, I, like concept or, like, political identity of human, then, like, you know, the least burdened you are by these systems, the more animalized you are, the more victimized by these you become. Mark told me about the ways he sees a human bias against the unfamiliar and how it influences the way conservation is put into practice. In the past, say, 40, 50 years, um, I mean, the world has become much more cosmopolitan. Now, people have been moving around from country to country for thousands of years, uh, but still with the development of uh, air travel and um, ocean ships are able to transport people and goods so frequently and uh, abundantly, uh, there has been really, as everyone could notice, very rapid change uh, in the United States, uh, other parts of the world. Humans as a group, you know, don't really welcome rapid change. You can think of it in your own life or, uh, you know, broadly in societies. Um, I mean, rapid change is there's a lot of uncertainty with respect to it. Um, you know, exactly what is the future going to hold? And, and a common response to the, that rapid change is to uh, resist it, to uh, try to uh, prevent this change from happening, to try to return to the way things were before. You know, anthropologists, uh, sociologists uh, have, have long written about that in many, you know, there's countless examples around the world. Uh, when faced with uh, very rapid change and threats to what was a uh, a fairly stable society, there is often great, as I said, great resistance to the new, whether it's new species coming in or new peoples coming in, new cultures, and kind of a, um, a nostalgic desire to return to the way things were when they were much more stable, much more predictable. We knew what was what would happen. And so I, I really view the um, attitudes toward the uh, new species as really just part of this, this much larger global phenomenon of general resistance to this cosmopolitanization. I mean, scientists are just humans uh, as well, as well as being scientists, and there's no reason to expect that uh, scientists uh, would automatically behave differently than other people when faced with this rapid change. First of all, no matter what we do, everything that we do is going to be influenced by our biases because, like, our biases exist, and, like, you know, the best way to mitigate them is for us to recognize that they are there. And that's what the historians of science, you know, sociologists of science, philosophers of science, people whose specialty is to analyze why people think the way they do, why they speak the way they do, um, you know, they recognize that phenomena from the start, that uh, larger cultural issues were influencing the fields of conservation, uh, invasion biology, and restoration ecology. But within the scientific field, there was at most a very, very small group of individuals that seemed to recognize what was happening. And uh, the field just kind of marched on, kind of with its uh, head in the sand. Um, with all this emotive language and uh, agenda-based language, not really recognizing this larger 
anti-globalization phenomena that was uh, taking place in the world. No one stops to think about these things, and we're not, you know, we're not trained to think about them critically. Um, and that, like, you know, that's the problem. We're not trained to really consider how, like, there are so many aspects of coded language um, that go into the, the way that, like, we receive messages in our society. Well, I think one of my main criticisms of invasion biology has been that it is regularly engaged in widespread emotive language as part of the uh, dissemination of, of science. For example, introduced species, uh, as I said, have been called invaders, we call it biological pollution. Uh, these species are often vilified or have been vilified in scientific articles and presentations. Changes caused by some introduced species have been termed ecological meltdowns, kind of uh, relating it to uh, meltdowns of nuclear reactors or something. Uh, military language is often used as well, for example, describing management efforts to control non-native species as engaging war on these species. You see countless examples of like a militarized police referencing people of color, particularly black people as animals. Um, you see the tools that had been historically used on black people, um, like, you know, in the 18th and 19th century and those tools being modeled on, like, you know, on, on tools of like of industrial animal agriculture. In the United States, native generally means species that were present prior to the Europeans arriving, and non-native generally means species arriving after the Europeans. The difference sometimes can be fuzzy, though. Uh, for example, house finches have existed in the American West, presumably for thousands of years. So we certainly could agree that they are native to the United States. but they were introduced to the East Coast of the United States uh, for reasons I'm not entirely sure uh, in the 20th century. And then they began to migrate West and they arrived in Minnesota about 25 years ago. So are they non-native or native in Minnesota? Uh, I mean, it depends on which geographic area you're considering. If you're considering the US, then they are native and they just have moved around uh, within the country. If you're just considering Minnesota, then they would be non-native because they weren't here until recently. In the U.S., there does exist a very specific definition for invasive species, uh, which is any non-native species that is causing harm, whether that's the economic harm, ecological harm, or harm to human health. Now, there usually is very little disagreement over what constitutes economic harm and harm to human health. However, people often do disagree over what constitutes ecological harm. Sebastian had recently heard another story about an animal being labeled invasive, and he told me about how these narratives can relate to racism. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission in a news release says people should exterminate very deliberate language, like, you know, I have to note the large green lizards on their properties, as well as on 22 public land areas across South Florida. Um, it says, and I quote, homeowners do not need a permit to kill iguanas on their own property, end quote. The FWC, the Florida Wildlife Commission, encourages homeowners to kill green iguanas whenever possible. They're an invasive species and have threatened plants and animals native to the Sunshine State. 
the males can grow up to five feet long and weigh nearly 20 pounds. Like, wow, like we have these arbitrarily contrived boundaries of where someone is supposed to belong. We have largely introduced like the species for these group of persons to this land. And by way of managing their population, our decision of how to handle this is to, quote, exterminate them whenever we see them on our property and I'm using the air quote again um, like because like even the like the concept of property is a function of the state there's no such thing as someone who is invasive there are only persons who have been disadvantaged by like you know this society who are victims of like you know this arbitrary system that we have drawn up with these like contrived boundaries of in this case of the iguanas like the quote sunshine state who now have to live with people who are literally putting a target on their head and sentencing them to die for being in the wrong place at the wrong time because someone has decided that they don't belong there. And if you think that that doesn't have anything to do with, like, black people, I'm going to introduce you to Trayvon Martin, who also, like, you know, was living in Florida and, like, had fallen victim to someone who had decided based on arbitrary standards that he did not belong in the neighborhood that he was in and he had been shot to death as a result of that as have so many countless other black people in this nation and others the terminology for invasive species the definition for invasive species actually was part of a um, executive order which was signed by president clinton in 1999 so there is a formal legal basis for the terminology for invasive species. This is not the case for native and non-native. And before that, people were already using the term invasive, right? But were they just right. using it differently? Yeah, they were. In the um, 1980s and at least through the mid-90s, an invader actually was any non-native species. So the uh, 1999 executive order modified that. Um, so if you were an introduced species, uh, meaning a non-native species in the 1980s and, and into the 1990s, you were considered to be an invader or an invasive species that was very black and white. There was no uh, discrimination uh, made between species that were causing harm, non-native species, and species that were not causing harm. So the 1999 executive order helped to make that discrimination regarding the term invasive species. Are people ever considered an invasive species? Definitely. I think there's widespread agreement that humans are the most invasive species of all. I mean, anywhere humans have gone on, on planet Earth, we have, uh, even thousands of years ago, uh, dramatically changed the ecosystems, sometimes directly changed the abundance of species, for example, by hunting them, uh, by creating fires and, and uh, transforming forests into more grassland or savanna habitats. Um, humans, without question, have had the biggest impact on ecosystems and other species than any other species in the world. And there's little or no disagreement on that. 
we briefly had a conversation about this before you and I. Like, you know, like based on all of the research that I have, it's not, quote, human beings that are invasive. It is, again, a product of the system that we live in, and it is heavily influenced by whiteness. And, like, again, this isn't to say, like, you know, white people are inherently evil, but how do you not recognize that, like, you know, the, the way that we interact with the world, the natural world, was, like, you know, was directly changed um, by the Industrial Revolution, which started in Europe. This is in a European system. And, yeah, that, like, that set us on a trend that has had catastrophic consequences for the planet at large. And, again, like, this is married to the rise of mercantile capitalism. And the idea of concentrating capital into the hand of a very small group of people and allowing them free reign, um, unregulated, to, like, you know, to, to, like, wreak havoc on the rest of the world. That is the problem, not humans as a whole, because there's absolutely no way that you can equalize between yourself and I, who live in the global West, with a person who is living in, say, Brazil, or a person who is living in the rainforest, or a person who is living anywhere else in the world that's not making trash um, at 20 times the rate of another human being on the other side of the planet who doesn't have a mobile phone and, like, you know, mass electronics. It's not humans collectively who are the problems. It is a very small group of people. And we need to have much more nuanced, more important conversations about, like, you know, about who we are talking about. But we're all kind of painted with the same, like, oh, people are the worst. Humans are invasive. Humans are the I don't think that it is humans. We need to actually locate the problem where it, like, actually exists and not be like, well, like, you know, those pesky humans are, like, you know, they're up to no good again because that's that's not the case. You know, in evolutionary sense, we're just another species like the other species that have evolved. Um, but our impacts on transforming ecosystems and, and even the entire Earth at a global scale uh, is something that no other species uh, is able to do and has ever done. So um, we're certainly just not, not simply uh, another species. From Rob's perspective, the goat relocation is an attempt at reversing some of the harmful impacts human beings have already made to nature. He thinks bringing the goats was a mistake we made, and now we need to repair the harm we've done and put things back in order. At one time, maybe some people had the simplistic notion of, oh, they're mountains, we should have mountain goats, I like to look at them, and we could hunt them, but without really either understanding or thinking through, well, what does it really mean to bring in something that isn't here to some place like this? Uh, and maybe they thought it was such a large place that we wouldn't have much impact, but now we know better. So I think it's up to us with that understanding to try to fix a past mistake, especially when if you take the mountain goats from the Olympics and put them into the Cascades where they belong, where there used to be a lot more of them than there are now, you can actually have a recovery project in the Olympics and a restoration project in the Cascades. So you get two good things out of one action, and that's what they're trying to do here. The Cascades are, uh, like most of the Rocky Mountain West, all the way from really Mexico, all the way up to Alaska, 
has a lot of high peaks that are very suitable and populated with mountain goats. They've always been there. Um, many, you know, they're still mostly there. The North Cascade does have a native population of mountain goats, which has dwindled significantly. In the Cascades, though, uh, the state allowed them to be hunted until the 1990s a lot, uh, so much so that people were having a hard time, even hunters were having a hard time finding any. And now they're worried about those goats dying out. And some of those reasons are because they've been hunted a lot. So they cut back that drastically, realized they'd allowed too much hunting, and now there are isolated populations of mountain goats. Some are in North Cascades National Park. Some are throughout the wilderness or national forest land between North Cascades and Mount Rainier. It's those populations which are stable but small and isolated and are not recovering very quickly. And so there's a lot of space on the landscape and in the ecosystem there for mountain goats. And that's why it's such an ideal uh, bookend of an opportunity to remove them from the place they don't belong, put them in the place they do, and help recover those herds that are still the remnant herds in the Cascades, so that once again, there are enough mountain goats to see, to find each other, uh, to, uh, to inhabit, uh, inhabit that and exchange uh, genetics because right now, if they're too isolated, then you're not exchanging the genetics that you need in order to keep a, a species healthy over the long term. So it's a recovery project that will be enhanced by bringing in fresh goats, basically. And also, now they are not allowing nearly as much hunting uh, because they're, they don't want the same situation to be recreated. But others like Rachel don't see this as a perfect solution to two problems. Rachel isn't sure that the mountain goats really will do so well in the Cascades. They're not quite sure exactly why they have not thrived in the North Cascades. The hunting is probably not the reason. There has been speculation that they don't have enough genetic diversity, which would also happen in the Olympic National Park. So they haven't uh, pinpointed why they have not previously thrived in the North Cascades. And she feels they should have done more research into different options that might have been less traumatic for the goats. Six kid goats, so baby goats basically, were sent to a wildlife park, and then six adults died during the capture, and two died during transport. And three were killed because they deemed them unfit for relocation. They said uh, one was too aggressive and two had a disease. I find it odd that they want to take these goats and put them in a place where they're supposed to live out their natural lives. And now they're saying, oh no, this goat is too aggressive. Especially when they're going to hunt them. I mean, wouldn't it be fair to have an aggressive goat? <laughs> but it's, that was what they determined. And they'll probably run across a whole lot more aggressive goats when they can start up the transfer process again. So I would expect more deaths. It's also not, it's not the only option too. They did not consider the idea of using chemical birth control, which has been used in other ungulates. So other hooded uh, mammals that are similar to mountain goats. That is also something they could have done if they want to reduce the population, but they did not consider that. And in correspondence I've received from them, 
for a FOIA request, they specifically said we don't want to put that in there because we don't want people to think that's an option. Did you get to witness the relocation process at all? Yes, uh, some of us went out and watched that at one location on Hurricane Ridge, which is up above Port Angeles. We were at the staging area, meaning that's where the crates were, where the goats would arrive after being captured in, um, elsewhere in the mountains, brought in by helicopter. It happened to be an, uh, a windy and overcast day, so the helicopter was grounded. Uh, they'd been out earlier in the morning, but the conditions were such that they were on the ground there. So we didn't actually see them bring in the goats, but we did see a few goats and crates they brought in from earlier that day. We got a chance to visit with the veterinarians. Uh, that were there and the crew on the helicopter and all the other people that were managing the project, probably more so than we would have if it was an active operation. So what they did was, you know, they captured them. They capture them in the park and fly them to a staging location also in the park, which is at the end of a road, a large parking lot. And then from there, they're loaded into trucks. They uh, drive across the, you know, down the highways, drive them overnight over to the Cascades, drive it to the end of a forest road. Drop them over the North Cascades and release them. And they watch them. They uh, set up the crates where the goats are then released at a place that's really close by to some cliffs that they think they'll like. And they release several at a time. Uh, they try to release them the places where uh, they think that they will see other goats and also uh, be good habitat, safe cliff faces for them, as well as something to eat. Um, and then off they go. But after they, they go out of sight, they just have the radio callers to tell them what's going on. They are sensitive animals, so that whole process is very stressful. The vets can monitor, but ultimately you're doing something that, that is traumatizing to them. There certainly are some that are really concerned about the goat's welfare and feel that this whole process is um, harmful to certainly the individual goats. So that's not an eco, ecological argument. It is more an animal argument about the individual. Which makes you wonder, which is more important, the individual or the whole? Mark told me that as he's grown older, he's become more concerned with the individual. As a younger ecologist, my concern was like most ecologists was that the uh, population and species level and as long as populations and species were preserved that was really all that mattered and for whatever reasons I, as I've grown older um, and as I think as more scientific data has come in showing that uh, other animals share a lot of internal cognitive and emotional aspects with humans that uh, we should feel obligated to do our best to try to uh, minimize the uh, negative effects and the harmful effects uh, on individual animals. Sebastian thinks this issue of the individual is at the heart of a lot of disagreement around how to treat other animals. But really, you know, we do have common goals. And it's just the idea of focusing on individual species once again that really like gets in the way of a lot of the work that we want to do. And recognizing that the idea of species membership precludes us from looking at them as individuals. These are individuals whose lives are important and who like, you know, whose personal autonomy, whose families, whose like, you know, whose complex emotional relationships must be recognized and honored in a meaningful way. 
every individual has a need. How do we best meet the needs of all of the people? We should all have to sit down at the table and have a conversation about that. We have to learn how to live together, and, and we have to learn how to collaborate together and really, like, you know, look at our commonality rather than our differences. As citizens of the world, human beings have a lot of important decisions to make about how we impact the rest of its inhabitants. And we may have the opportunity to have a much more positive impact, especially if we're able to collaborate effectively. I don't even know if we collectively have an idea of what it means to preserve nature, um, because we, we don't. Um, like, we haven't all agreed on what even nature is, um, like, let alone how we should preserve it but most of the ideas that we have around it, as abstract as they may be, do come from largely, like, you know, white middle-class people. I want to believe that people mean well, so I don't, even though I don't particularly agree with their decisions, I would like to believe that the Parks Department is trying to do what they think of as best, and I understand this is a complicated issue, and I don't really want to paint anybody as the bad person or the bad actor. This isn't a competition. Like a binary where, like, you know, it's either one or the other is completely arbitrary. It's totally made up. And, like, you know, and, and, and we can actually act in solidarity with one another. To recognize the marginalization of other animals takes absolutely nothing away from our own marginalization. It absolutely does not. In fact, like, the opposite is true because solidarity builds movements, because solidarity is the very force that is, like, that, that is most important to, like, you know, to destabilizing those institutional forces. And, and I know that we have a lot, a lot of distractions <laughs> with everything else that's going on in current events right now, and it's, <laughs> it can be easy to think, well, why does it matter a couple, 300 or 700 goats and why should I pay attention to this? But I hope people will look into this because what happens to these goats, it's not necessarily an isolated issue. I mean, this is going to happen to other places. It happens with wild horses. We keep continue messing around with wolves. And so even though we think about this as just a one thing, it's just these goats and, and maybe people don't necessarily care about mountain goats, it's, it's going to happen in other places. And now this person, be they a deer, be they a bear, be they whatever, quote, wild animal that there is out there, and of course these are artificial constructions themselves, wild, you know, or tame. There's no such thing as wild or tame. You know, they, they have as much of a right to be here. There's no nature and then place that is non-nature. Like, you know, we, we all exist in this world together, and we have to let go of the illusions that we have created and like you know these artificial constructions around where someone's place is supposed to be who is native to one place versus like you know who is non-native or like I hate even using this word invasive um, you know that is absolutely that's false um, everyone belongs everywhere um, whether they are human or whether they're not human regardless of the artificial constructions that we've thrown up if conservation and animal rights groups are going to be able to work together, this seems like one of the biggest obstacles. Deciding whether it's most important to value preserving certain ecosystems and species groups as they are now, or to value individual animals' welfare. Conservation at its base is a value-based enterprise. It has particular goals, uh, there's an agenda that's set, 
you know, we want to preserve um, the species or we want to preserve this ecosystem and the species that live in it. Um, so any effort to preserve nature is guided by some underlying values and purpose. So that doesn't mean that it's bad, uh, just because it's, you might say that it's biased. Uh, but conservation is a goal-motivated endeavor, and the goals are created by us. So what should those goals be? If the work we do to care for nature is preserving an ecosystem, we should be examining why that is our goal. Do we have some moral responsibility to keep ecosystems the same as they are now? Do we have a moral obligation to preserve certain species as they are now? The idea of preserving species is like, it's a really difficult question to answer because like species like, you know, are, are going extinct every day because of human reasons um, and, and human interactions and human involvement. So like the idea of preserving species, like that, that's really important. Um, insofar as like the way that we've acted irresponsibly to like, you know, to, to drive others to extinction. But the idea that someone has an inherent right to exist because of their species membership is also dangerous. Ecosystems are not evolutionary entities. Um, ecosystems are just a collection of organisms and physical and biological processes. Thus there really isn't, even though you may refer to it as an entity, um, Ecologically, it really is not, um, and so there really is no entity to treat morally. While it would be great to think that, like, you know, that, that, that everyone has an inherent right to exist because they are an existing species right now, species is not, it, it's not a static construct. Like, you know, humans have evolved into existence, dinosaurs have evolved out of existence. Who is going to be on this planet in 100 years? Who is going to be on this planet in 10,000 years? Um, we don't know, and like you know, and do we have a right to prevent someone else from coming into existence that like you know we can't foresee yet? Um, and do we have a right to interfere to the point that like you know that someone who is currently in existence should like go on in perpetuity exactly the way that they are? That doesn't mean we might be interested in uh, preserving, say, like a forest ecosystem or a um, freshwater uh, system. Uh, because by preserving the system, we are likely also preserving uh, species that live in it. And that may be our particular interest in preserving the organisms that live in the ecosystems. But um, even though we call things as ecosystems, that's really a, a human construct. Like, you know, like evolution is going to happen, like, you know, whether we want it to or not, or at least it should happen. And it doesn't happen very linearly. So, so yeah, like, you know, as, as a philosophical point, like, that's really difficult to answer. Um, I don't think that, like, you know, the existence of a species inherently makes them, like, gives them a right to exist forever. Um, I don't even think that humans have necessarily a right to live forever. And ecosystems, one could argue, don't really exist outside of our minds, which is different than individual organisms, which uh, certainly do exist uh, even before there were there were humans here. I mean, an ecosystem, you know, as an entity, would suggest that there are specific boundaries to it that it has evolved, and uh, neither of those uh, is the case. So, should we also, like, you know, stop 
another species from evolving into someone else or like going away altogether just because we like to have them here, just because like, you know, this happens to be a particularly charismatic group. Well, ultimately, uh, I think once a non-native species has been introduced uh, into a country or an area, I think we should really approach it and treat it and native species in a similar way. You know, for some reason that has proven to be a controversial statement. To me, it doesn't really seem that it should be, but there are some that still argue that we should be treating and managing species primarily on where they are from, uh, as opposed to what, what they are actually doing. There's enough room on this planet for all of us. There is even enough room on this planet right now for more humans, but we're greedy. We, we are greedy, and I say we, again, like talking about like the way that we live in Western society. Um, we, like, you know, we can't get enough of the excesses of capitalism. We cannot get enough of, like, you know, of, of colonizing other people's lands. And if we just learn to be happy with what we have and recognize that, like, you know, that sharing resources instead of hoarding them, like, it allows us so much more freedom because the scarcity that has been created is completely artificial and it has been taught to us by capitalism. So, so yeah, like, you know, like letting go of that superiority, letting go of our perceived exceptionalism and letting go of our domination of other species on this planet that are our cohabitants of this planet. That's a huge first step. But we all think that like, you know, we have a right. How many conversations have I had with people who are sometimes very young who think that like, you know, someone else has been put here for us. God put animals here for us, like other animals exist for us. The absurdity of this a species that has existed for like such a fraction of time on this planet, thinking that everyone else here was put here, in some cases millions of years before we got here, for us. Wow. Like, you know, like if, if that doesn't speak to our exceptionalism, I don't know what does. Um, but again, like, you know, we're not, like, I don't blame people because we're not taught to think critically about these things. We continue to think about, well, what can this animal do for us? What can it do for me? And even if people don't mean to think that way, they do. I think we'd get a lot further if we stop seeing it in terms of what humans want and think of it as what is best for those animals and what is best for the environment. You know, we, we may have like a, a rather short shelf life on this planet before like it's our time to move on. Like it doesn't necessarily fill me with joy um, you know, I don't get excited about that, but it's a, it's a possibility and it is a reality um, like that, like, like that, that, that everyone's time comes and goes. Like, you know, like making sure that we don't drive someone else's time into extinction because of our existence and because of our own personal greed for resources and competition on this planet. Yeah, we should we should be avoiding that um, and we should we, we should cease to do that. Um, insofar as we're able. No matter how much longer humans end up being on this planet, I would like to think that we could move toward giving more consideration to the well-being of other animals and of each other. And that forces us to put a lot of ego aside and a lot of our saviorism aside. But there are so many opportunities for us to learn so much more. And we need to do that. Otherwise, what, what, do, we, what do we have? What do we have left? Because as Mark said, as far as we know at this point, um, 
other species are our only companions in the entire universe. We don't know how much longer we'll be on this planet, or who might be here after us, but we know who is here now. And so we should be making sure we treat those beings with respect and dignity, and figuring out what that looks like. And that means taking the time to examine whether preserving ecosystems and species actually benefits the beings on this planet. So today I'd like you to consider, when we preserve nature, who are we preserving it for? Thanks so much to Mark Davis, Christopher Sebastian, Rob Smith, and Rachel Bjork for sharing their perspectives on these issues and making this episode happen. If you liked the episode, be sure to share it with your friends and anyone who might be interested in learning more about wild animal welfare. You can find more information about this episode and our guests at wildanimalinitiative.org wildness.